It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening, I'm Clarence Boone, and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning radio broadcast in our 16th year. is Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. Good evening, I'm William Hosea. At a special meeting on February the 3rd of this year, the Monroe County Community School Corporation Board of Trustees approved a three-year contract for Dr. Jeff Hoswald as superintendent. Dr. Hoswald begins his duties at MCCSC July 1st, 2021. Now, since July 1st of 2010, Dr. Hoswald has served as superintendent at the Kokomo School Corporation in Kokomo, Indiana. And Dr. Hoswald currently serves as president of the Indiana Urban Schools Association. In an earlier statement, Dr. Hoswald stated that I am looking forward to meeting with students, parents, staff, and other members of the MCCSC community. He also noted, I am eager to hear from constituents and to gain additional insights into the district. And with that, here to join us for a conversation with Dr. Jeff Hoswald, our, our good Bring It On friends, MCCSC trustee board team, uh, board trustee board members, April Hennessy from District 1 and Jacinda Townsend Guidas from District 6. Six. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Bring It On. Thank you for having us. Uh, let, me, let me first ask now, in our introduction, was there anything that was not correct? Because I think I want to make sure that we have the districts correct. And District Two, okay. Uh, April Hennessy is is a board trustee member from District Two, although I know that District uh, the other district would love to have you. They can't, so District Two is where she uh, uh, she she helps to govern and to share her wisdom. And Dr. Hallswalt, was there anything that we did not add or was incorrect in that? Not that I know of. I actually haven't figured out which board members represent which area. I'll learn that a little later on. All but right. uh, the information on me sounded fine. All right. Well, in that case, thank you for joining us tonight. Have a good evening. No, <laughs> we're going to, we have a lot wow. to talk about. And, and we talked obviously before we started and uh, we, we had such a, a wonderful, just pre-conversation. And William suggested something that, that was a great idea. And that is, is that we may ask a couple of guiding questions and then just stand back and then let some synergy take place between our three guests. Um, and I'll just say that uh, as you are observing, Dr. Hoswald, uh, between now and July 1st of 2021, are there any, any observations that you've gleaned thus far that you wanna share your opinions on some things? And then keep in mind too, if you wish to care on how things uh, are going in Kokomo, you can um, share on both sides there. Great. Um, well, thank you again for uh, having me on the show. I look forward to the conversation as well. Um, you know, when we had a, a discussion about uh, having this conversation, I, I, I told you that um, I, I know more about Kokomo than I do about Monroe County, and that's rightfully so after having uh, I'm wrapping up my 11th year there as superintendent. So I'll, I'll give you some insights I see in education in general, uh, um, some, some concerns we have for public education in Indiana and, 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 and nationally. Um, and we'll keep it at a, at a policy level conversation. 
I can give you some specifics uh, related to what we're doing in, in Kokomo, but I do want to issue one um, disclaimer, and that is that it would be disingenuous of me to bring a, a recipe or a formula um, to, a, to a new job in a new community without, like you discussed, uh, listening to the community, having conversations, and really working with the, the Board of School Trustees and the staff at NCCSC. So I, I'll tell you that, it, it, you know, I, I'm careful not to give um, solutions to problems I haven't fully studied. Um, and also, I realize the limit of the, the scope of my responsibilities in working with the Board of School Trustees. And, and I know that um, uh, April and Jacinda and I spoke earlier, and, and you know, a board works in concert. So it's working with the board in its entirety, but also having a lot of community conversations. So um, I, if I give you an example, it, it definitely doesn't mean that that's, a, um, uh, that that's something that's going to be prescribed at NCCSC. So um, that, that's, that's the only word of caution I give you um, okay. as, as we get into this conversation. I'll try to, to delineate what's a, you know, just a personal opinion or thought, um, something that, that we're working on in Kokomo, um, and then what, what that looks like or what that may mean uh, at NCCSC. And when you get down into specifics at NCCSC, uh, really, uh, April and Jacinda are the ones that are probably going to have more insights. Um, I've worked in um, in Monroe County seven days so far, so I have a lot to learn. So uh, they really are the experts at this point. Uh, I bring, you know, I bring ideas and strategies, but uh, um, in terms of background knowledge, um, they'll, they'll, they'll be uh, probably uh, uh, more more astute on those things than I am. But we'll see. Uh, hopefully, right. in another year, um, then 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 I'll have more insights as well. So sure. Well, well, thank you for that response, uh, William. Well, I'm going to throw this one out to uh, everybody. Um, we see school resource officers being called upon more and more and to, to deal with school discipline issues, which inadvertently increases the likelihood of student contact with the justice system, which promotes the school to prison pipeline, which has disproportionately affected minorities and students with emotional and behavioral disabilities. So what I want to know are, are what are your particular thoughts or your individual thoughts on school resource officers in our school system? I am so glad you asked that question. Exactly why I asked it, Jacinda. <laughs> I have lots and lots of thoughts. And, um, and I want to say that um, so, you know, MCCSC is using, of course, SROs. We also have at the school with the highest, at the elementary school with the highest Black and free lunch population, the only security officer that is assigned to elementary schools in this corporation. And that is just shameful to me because the message that that sends not only to those students, but to those parents and to the entire community um, is pretty obvious. It's pretty obvious. But with regard to SROs in general, um, and and there has been some, uh, you know, a, a lot of sort of movement on this in the state of Indiana um, in terms of wanting them completely out of the schools. Um, as as we also know in other states, um, in Minneapolis, they just completely terminated their contracts. In LA, they not only terminated SRO contracts, but they then took that funding and put it towards black student achievement. So just to talk a little bit about why they're problematic, um, there is no research that indicates that they increase school safety. Um, we saw in Parkland that they do not prevent school shootings. I think that guy just kind of ran away and sat in his car, right? 
Um, they disproportionately target Black and Indigenous students and other students of color. They contribute to the school-to-prison pipeline. We know that. Um, moreover, they normalize the presence of police culture in a school, which is a terrible thing. They disrupt student learning by orienting school discipline to approach students as criminals. Um, I am unnerved when I walk into my child's high school and the SRO is sitting at the front desk. It, it doesn't create like a positive feeling for me at all um, as a black parent. I suspect I wouldn't feel great as a white parent either. Um, and what's the worst is that the one thing they're effective at research shows is pushing students of color out of school by referring them to law enforcement. Um, they're not trained in mediation. They're not trained in escalation. They are not trained to recognize violence, trauma, or abuse. Um, and, you know, rather than funding programs that hold our students back, we should encourage, we should allocate those funds elsewhere. So those are my thoughts. <laughs> just I mean, a couple of them, right? <laughs> yeah, just a couple. I mean, I'm, I don't even really have much to add because Jacinda just laid it all out, right? Um, and for me also, like, I don't, I don't really want anyone to have a gun in the school building. So... You know, I, I just, that, that's another added layer there. Um, and we know that so often the people against whom gun violence is used, again, are um, people of color. Um, and so I just, for me, yeah. I mean, Justin has already said it all at this point. What a, um, so many policy questions that are wrapped up in the one, you know, we, we touched on guns in schools. We've talked about the social emotional health of our students and how we keep our students safe. Um, I think that the, uh, at a general level, the conversation is just that. What resources do our students need um, to, to be successful in school? Um, whether that's uh, the, the wraparound services for social uh, emotional uh, concerns or what, it is, what we need for, for academics to close the achievement gap, uh, particularly with our black students, as Jacinda hinted, um, we wanna make sure that we're working to close um, the, the achievement gap for our students, particularly our students of color. Um, I think that I'm not speaking specifically to um, MCCSC as I'm just getting in and learning uh, about the role SROs, SROs play. Um, I, in Kokomo School Corporation, we've really um, had a, a focus. We do have a limited number of SROs um, um, and we work with the Kokomo Police Department, but we've been very, um, had intentional conversations about how we limit um, the scope and, and, and responsibility of, of those officers. Um, and really focused on providing social workers, uh, counselors, um, and other um, uh, school therapists uh, that would be available for our students. Um, and and again, uh, not having um, some of the um, some of the arrest uh, authority um, type of things that, that that seem to be punitive in nature. Um, we want it to be um, a collaborative uh, process in which our, our principal and our school staff are um, are available to take care of the the, the main concerns. That arise in buildings, and more importantly, to respond to those uh, those issues. So, I, I do think that um, um, when we when we look at the, the role of SROs uh, in, in our current school district, it's um, it, it's it's situations that in which we may have a safety concern, um, and, and how um, how our SROs can assist with that. Um, um, and that's that's kind of the limit. We, we really have focused on how we limit the, the role of SROs in schools. So. I think these are these are incredibly uh, powerful, important conversations to have, um, and, and ultimately, um, you know, it, it's a conversation to have with the community, um, and, and a conversation to have with the, the board of school trustees. So, would this is uh, for April or Jacinda, uh, really? 
if you remove resource officers from the school, would you replace them with uh, a counselor or someone from uh, from a particular profession? Yeah, I think you know definitely increasing our our support in social work areas, people who are trained in de-escalation tactics, people who understand um, all of those sort of histories and backgrounds and how to sort of mitigate situations like that, those would be people high on my list. So whether that's a social worker, um, a school counselor, a therapist, um, but definitely sort of, because I think already like our social workers are, are stretched a little bit too thin or maybe not even a little bit, but a lot too thin. And, and that causes some of the issues, right? Kids are sort of, then can fall through the cracks, but then also um, situations which might have needed to be mitigated a bit sooner, um, maybe don't get caught. And, and that's not necessarily anyone's fault, but it is just a, a system that's stressed, right? So so absolutely, yeah. And, and I would add to that, um, you know, we've spent all this time this year talking about how kids need to be back in school because of their mental health. Meanwhile, we have at North and probably at South, I'm more familiar with the ratio at North, we have probably one counselor for every 500 students. I mean, there's one per grade, which there's no way that that one person can handle um, 500 student issues. You know what I mean? I mean, it's, I, I can't even imagine handling that many requests for say electives or transcripts or whatever. Um, so we, you know, we need to think about taking the money that we're spending on SROs and diverting it and putting it back into, um, you know, hiring and retaining people who are conscious about these issues. Um, but that, that, that counselor ratio is, is, pretty miserable, um, yeah. And, and you know, Jacinda, you have a good point. Um, if you have an SRO, uh, what is the message you're giving? We talk about not wanting our schools to look like prisons and we don't want our students to be treated um, as though they're in a prison. And so I, I, part of it is the optics of walking in and that's the first person you see um, versus, uh, you know, a, a staff member designed to, to greet and, and to give guidance. Um, and, and so that, that's a really good point you're making. Uh, it, it's the optics of it, but then also deeper, it's, it's the role that they, they play. I, um, you know, um, one of the things, the uh, conversations that are taking place is, is um, the, the, the relationship that exists between a lot of our professional staff members, right? So, so our conversation is, um, you know, not how many counselors we have or how many social workers or um, how many therapists or, or school sites, but what are the relationships these, they, they have? How do we make sure they're communicating with one another? Um, you know, so if you have four or maybe five counselors at a school, um, then what's the screening process that we understand um, if a student needs additional assistance in, in certain areas related to social emotional um, health, how do we refer that and how do we then put that on another caseload, but then making sure that somebody that's, that's working with that student is also talking to the counselor. Um, so it's overall ratio and the number of, of, of staff members we have and what that flow is, uh, I think is really important between the counselors who who are involved in, um, you know, years ago, um, they're called guidance counselors and they were, now that we, we refer to them as school counselors and making sure that, um, that, the, that they have a, a relationship with the students that are, that are identified for them to serve, but then also having a resource of other staff members available um, as, as needed based upon the unique individual situations associated with any given student. And, and I, I think those, kind of those things are in place. I think it's just making sure that we solidify those and making sure that um, as, as um, as Jacinda mentioned, that, that the, the needs of every student are being met and that we, that we adequately fund um, those, those services that are so important because we know these are barriers to learning. And when students have had 
too many uh, traumatic events um, in their lives, no amount of, of great teaching is going to help overcome those barriers. So, and there's a lot, and everyone right now has an additional barrier to learn, learning associated with the pandemic, right? And so perhaps for, um, for me, that, that's the only barrier I face right now, um, if I was a student. Other students who may already have hunger, may have had a loss of life of family or loved ones or a neighbor, um, other situations um, um, related to job loss of a family member, maybe there's physical abuse. I can go through lots of examples. And the more traumatic uh, um, events a student is experiencing, the, 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 the more barriers there are, the harder is that student to learn. And until we try to provide the services needed to remove that barrier or those barriers, um, the more we're probably going to see the achievement gap growing. So that's why these are so important conversations. These, these conversations are so important. And we make sure we get it right so that when the student does go into the classroom, um, we, we, we have a plan to help the, the student um, with those wraparound services so that they can learn when they're in that classroom. So, you know, it's, it's ironic that you started with this conversation, but it's a really important one to have first. And uh, moving on to another um, series of questions. I just want to clarify something that I heard just into, is it that uh, one school has an SRO or that all schools have an SRO? And if, if the one school has an SRO, maybe the argument of saying it's equitable to have SROs in every school. Um, I mean, if you're going to have them, then you're going to get into a cost issue and whatnot and reallocating resources. But the optics of having this, an SRO in one school is going to breed or is going to feed into um, perhaps um, this all types of stigma and what, whatnot. So uh, I see you not, nodding your head affirmatively. And yeah, and absolutely. And, and to elaborate that on further, I, I do wanna clarify that. So both high schools and all three middle schools have SROs and they are, okay. Okay. they are, the, the, the person at Fairview is a security officer. No other elementary school has a security officer. Okay. Um, I actually asked our current superintendent whether this was based on any data. It is not um, based on any data whatsoever. I mean, so we can guess what kind of data it's based on because it's not based on any sort of safety data. Go ahead um, and say it, Jacinda. Given the demographics of yeah. Fairview, yes, that is, I, I mean, that's quite a message to send, you know what I mean? And I understand like, you know, that, that I, I don't know the security officer, perhaps he's a good guy. I'm sure there is lots of, um, you know, anecdotal sort of information about what he's done, but the truth is he does not need to be there. And we do not need that in the school with the highest minority and highest um, free reduced lunch population. Okay, if you are just joining us, uh, we're having a conversation with Dr. Jeff Oswald, who is the newly appointed superintendent from Monroe County Community School Corporation. Uh, his tenure begins on July 1st of, of this year. And the lady you just heard speaking is um, MCCSC trustee, Jacinda Townsend, guide us from District 6. And also with us, we have uh, MCCSC trustee, April Hennessy, representing District 2. Uh, I, I want to sort of shift gears, but to do so, I am going to read something that I, I sort of pulled off of the MCCSC webpage. And I just want to read elements of it, then just turn it back uh, to our guests. Um, in reference to the iLearn scores, uh, a letter from current uh, Superintendent DeMuth was written back in August of 2019, although this was a couple years back. Um, 
This was the first year for iLearn, a test that was computer adaptive and completely different than iSTEP, which was a fixed form test. It was also very fatiguing for our children with long reading passages that demanded unbelievable stamina, along with exceptional computer navigational skills. The content taught by priority standards was not tested by iLearn. Unfortunately, the goal to make public school children and schools look bad continues, and what is worse, it is on the backs of these families as taxpayers. Our families, teachers, and children do not need the politically assigned grade iLearn represents. In addition, we just witnessed Indiana being a leader in teen suicides. The continual pressure of testing for our children and staff has taken a toll. Low pass rates and letter grades only work to inhibit, interfere, and negate our efforts to attract and retain high quality teachers for our students. Assigning and or making public a grade from our Indiana scores supports a strong foundation for underserved pressure for children, staff, and families. And her uh, suggestions in summing up this letter was, were uh, not making student and school grades public due to misrepresentation, not assigning a grade, or hold harmless all schools as when ISTEP began reverting back to last year's grade and give school corporations the money used for testing to pay teachers and staff. And just uh, uh, reactions from all three of you. I, I, I saw that and, and you know, it's rather riveting. Uh, your thoughts on that, Dr. Hoswald? Oh, you're muted right now. Standardized testing movement has been problematic for some time. And this is just my personal opinion. Um, it, it, and, and so I've, I've been meeting at, at schools with, with parents and teachers and, and students, and I'm really enjoying getting to know the different unique school communities. Um, and one of the teachers asked me about grading and my thoughts on grading. And I said, well, I said, first and foremost, the reason we give a grade um, is for the student to have some, under, some um, indication of their learning um, so that they can, uh, in terms of being uh, independent and, and make some corrective actions to understand the, the breakdown in the learning process and to improve. The second purpose of, 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 of an assessment or of grading is for the teacher. The teacher is the professional. It's to give meaningful feedback for the teacher to, to do the same thing. And that is to, to, uh, to make some corrective teaching uh, um, strategies, put those in place to um, all these things to close the achievement gap to help individual students. Um, but nowhere in these, and then of course the third is to give some sort of summative data to families so that families understand. But nowhere in this conversation, right? On the purposes of grading, are we talking about the, the purpose of an assessment to inform the state, to delay information, to generalize it, and to spit it back to us in a non-usable form, right? I mean, standardized assessments as they exist um, do not provide any of the information our teachers need. If it was instantaneous feedback in a formative fashion that our teachers could use to say, okay, now I, I see where the breakdown is. I can help our students get better. I can help close the achievement gap. Um, that, that, um, we're, we're so far removed from that. That, that I completely understand and agree with uh, um, in, in, in the statements you've read related to our concerns, we're spending a lot of money on, on, on testing and that testing isn't meaningful right now. Um, if, if you can come up with a plan in which it's, it's meaningful um, and can really help us, uh, help our teachers close the achievement gap, I'd be willing to at least listen to that. I, the, the problem is we're on our, um, I don't know, five or fifth or sixth iteration of the standardized testing in the last decade. Um, and, and we're batting about zero. So um, I guess my point is I, I, I probably have some doubts uh, in terms of um, the efficacy and the, and, and, and the um, uh, validity of, of a future exam. But for right now, um, it, it just isn't worth the investment. And, and you know, um, I, I think Jacinda mentioned all the needs that we have, right? We, the needs for, um, for support staff at our school, for, for social workers, for other expenses, and the amount of money we're spending on students um, 
if you look at the teacher commission report, which maybe we'll, the compensation commission report, which maybe we'll talk about a little later on, we've admitted we have a major funding shortfall to properly pay our teachers. So spending money on a test that doesn't appear to be valid or reliable um, seems questionable to me personally. Um, and, 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 I, and I do think there's, there's, there's bias in these tests. Um, we have to admit that. We have to be honest about that. We know that, um, that many of our students right now who are experiencing a traumatic event associated with this pandemic don't have the support services at home, but perhaps they're with families and that are um, they're immunocompromised so that they can't bring their students to school. Um, they, they may be living in a food desert. I mean, there's so many reasons why um, this is not the time to be doing testing. I kind of talk generally about concerns for, sta uh, for, for standardized testing across the state and the nation and this, this trend that is crazy. When we look back, I think we're gonna say we were crazy um, when it related to, to testing and, and maybe some other things too. But, um, but you know, it doesn't make sense right now. And, and now they're requiring um, students to come in. And, and then you kind of hinted at this. It's disingenuous for us to attach an ADEF letter grade to our teachers and our schools right now. Um, and then to, to say that that's going to inform evaluations. Um, our teachers are, are so much more than an ADF grade and so are our schools. Mm -hmm. And so um, it, it, it just doesn't make sense. And, and right now the, the federal government has issued some waivers um, and the state of Indiana for some reason is um, seeming to adhere to a, a stricter interpretation and a desire to continue the testing. Um, we definitely, if we're going to do this, um, need to give some parents um, some, some options and, and, and not taking that test, in my opinion. Um, and I think also we need to upfront say, um, we're not going to have any attachment to, from these grades to our schools and our teachers. Um, and, and, and if all that's in place, then you got to question why it's even worth doing, especially if the feedback isn't instantaneous. And we talked about the purpose of grading. If it's not going to instantaneously give feedback to our teachers so that they can inform their teaching immediately, then I think there's better use of the time, especially, especially this year. Um, um, in the middle of a pandemic. So um, oh. I, I guess I, the, the, if you want a shorter answer, you should ask me what would be good about iLearn right now. And uh, well, that, uh, that will, would have made my ask, answer a lot quicker. No, no, no. I will ask this follow-up and it's very clear your, your thoughts on that. But what assessment measure or metrics do we use to sort of uh, determine where students are and where teachers are and as instructors? Uh, what measurement, which these measurements, I think, go into such things as uh, determining whether or not a child is ready to pass on to the next grade and or uh, compensation measures uh, for students, I mean, for teachers. Uh, how are they compensated if, based on this metrics or whatever, um, they might get a promotion or something, depending on their performance in, as instructors? Well, so so this is not to say that we should not have, and I'm sorry, April, may I, real quick, and then I'll turn it over to you. Mm -hmm. um, we are all, we're all itching to talk at, at the same time. But this is not to say that we don't have meaningful assessments. We, we have some benchmarks. Some of them are, are, um, are provided, such as iReady assessments and, and other assessments that are in place. We definitely need to be assessing our students so that we can um, help close the achievement gap. I mean, data is are the most important thing that we can have at our disposal for knowing our students and, and for helping, um, helping them um, continue to grow academically. So I'm not saying that, that we wouldn't have any of those things. It's just that this particular iteration of the test, um, which does seem to be fraught with um, um, some, some misalignment to the standards um, and, and, and really just some, some design and testing flaws um, isn't a good use of money or time right now. That's what I would say. Um, and, and you know we have um, metrics in place 
that allow us to evaluate our teachers in a comprehensive fashion. Our, our building level administrators, and, I, and I'm gonna speak at Kokomo right now, and I'm beginning to get this impression at Bloomington too. Our building level administration, administrators, they're, they're evaluating, they know the teachers, they know the quality work that's going out there. Um, and there's parameters in place in Kokomo um, if a teacher isn't meeting performance requirements. But I, I have to tell you, um, uh, using a, using a, a standardized uh, um, test of iLearn right now to evaluate our teachers is, is, is fraught with a lot of concern and problems. And, and here's what I do want to say. I mean, I want to, and I'm going to speak more to the to the MCCSE experience, which is to say that you know in many departments, and I think the district and departments are getting better and better at using data at, at working with. Um, you know, measurable results. But, you know, for instance, in the English department of Bloomington High School North, we had formative and summative assessments that we gave at the start and at the end of each year that do align with the standards and to the things that we're teaching, right? So we can already sort of gauge the performance of our kids and the learning outcomes um, based on those kinds of things. And I do also wanna say that, well, you know, one of the issues with sort of evaluating teachers based on student performance on iLearn, well, there are so many issues with that. Um, but, but say for instance, that I'm a teacher who teaches all core 40 classes, you know, and then I have a teacher who teaches all honors and AP level classes. There's gonna be a discrepancy between the number of students in core 40 classes that pass and the number of students that pass in honors and AP classes. And there are all kinds of issues for that as well, right? And all kinds of disparities there that we could talk about. But even if you just take those two facts alone and you look at those two teachers, their pass rates are gonna be very different. And to, to just say like, okay, this teacher had, you know, 75% pass rate and this teacher had a 65% pass rate and let's just apples to apples. It, it can't be done, right? So I think that's one major problem um, among many, many, many problems evaluating teachers in that way. And also in evaluating our students. Um, Cause I had students who they may never have passed I-STEP at that point, right? They could take it sophomore year, junior year, senior year, they did all the remediation, did, they did all the stuff that they were supposed to do. And they just, they just couldn't pass the test, but they could pass my English class, right? They could learn and grow and do the work at their pace um, according to their IEPs or whatever they might be. And they would pass that class. So if that's a graduation barrier, right? That's a problem for me. If them passing or not passing I-STEP is a graduation barrier at that point, you know, I have a problem with that. Um, so I think there are lots of issues with standardized tests like this. And I do know that I think 2022, that class is the last class that has the graduation requirement for the test. Don't they move they, to graduate? There, there, are other, there are other pathways yeah, that would allow them to get to, there, there are still some testing allowances, but there are other pathways. You yeah. know, April, you hinted at this. And, and again, if we wanna talk about focusing on equity, right? And we're having a lot of conversations about equity and we should we've got to move away from a one size fits all approach. April kind of hinted at that, that, you know, um, she's kind of talking about criterion referenced assessments where we're just going to set a standard and, and that's where we want every student to be. I, I, let, let's take a, um, take a fourth grader, right? That comes into fourth grade at a fifth grade level and grows one level, grows a half of a year in, a, in one year. Then take another student that comes in at a second grade level and ends the year uh, a year and a half advanced, right? If we're going to look at growth, which we want to do, that student, that, that teacher that helped that student grow a year and a half in a year, you know, exceeded our uh, the, the, the trajectory, and that helps close the achievement gap. We, you know, we we got to look at that compared to some of this norm-based referencing. And the state really keeps saying we're going to move towards uh, a growth metric. Then they set these crazy benchmarks 
that puts students in groupings and then they end up norm referencing and, and requiring so many students to, 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 to be high, um, high growth and so many to be low growth. We, it just, it, it's inherent in human nature, it seems to be, to move things back to comparing students to students in norm referencing. And that is, you know, we, that, that's completely, uh, we gotta be focused on helping every student maximize their ability, abilities and their potential. Um, and until we can have that conversation, we're not gonna have equitable assessments and equitable grading. I wanna go to Jacinda on this next one. Um, what is your sense of how student academic progress has been impacted in, in the era of COVID? Um, would, would it be at the same place if we were not struggling through a pandemic? And uh, if there is an issue, how do you think MCCSC can address that? That's a really good question. I mean, I have, you know, I have two students in my house and they both have been online this whole time. One, one of them, you know, full disclosure, she withdrew and we're homeschooling her. But um, what I noticed almost immediately is that um, I feel like MCCSE could have done a much better initial job with the online students. Um, I think we spent a lot of energy trying to figure out how we could get people back in school as soon as possible when the truth is, there are students who do not feel comfortable going back to school. Um, so, you know, I remember the day that um, my then high schooler watched as her teacher gave the, the in-person students all this time and then sort of turned around and gave the online students a little bit of that time. Um, and, it, and it's been discouraging and we've lost a lot of students, um, you know, and I, I wish that we could and, and I think we're starting to, I know that um, there is a, oh, April maybe remembers this. There is an office at MCCSC that is slowly, slowly trying to give personalized attention to the students we lost. But the truth is we have, we've lost about, um, it's a, a few hundred, right, April? It's a few hundred students that we lost. Um, the students who have stayed, I know, I'm, I mean, I hear, you know, because I have two girls, one is going to middle school, one's in high school, the students who we have are stressed out in ways that they really shouldn't be, um, you know, one, one idea, and I, I know this wasn't up to us, it was up to the state of Indiana, but I know in other states, there were districts that just across the board knocked off a couple of classes, they made it easier on teachers, they made it easier on students. It was a pandemic and we as a nation sort of pretended that we were just, everything was gonna go along as business as usual. So I don't know that, you know, there are students who maybe didn't use a year of learning, but they were very stressed out about it, um, you know, and then there are all these students who, who have lost. And I think going forward, you know, now that the world is opening back up, we're going to have to put as much effort into reeling those students back in as we did into trying to keep buildings open when that maybe wasn't the best idea. And there was silence. <laughs> Um, as we look at uh, how we're now entering into March Madness, I'm sure we're familiar with that concept, March Madness, because this year it is madness. Uh, but we have schools competing for IHSAA for the state title or in different classifications. Um, and then we have all these schools descending on Indiana for the NCAA, which I don't, that's a three hour 
program right there. Um, as you know, it has the term super spreader uh, made any sense to anyone. Um, what's your thought on, on athletics? Uh, it's a major part of, of, of junior high and high school. And some kids, potentially, that may be their way to get to college. But with the pandemic, uh, you know, it's things are kind of topsy-turvy. There seems to be some normalcy coming. But if, uh, fortunately, Indiana has not banned mask wearing, uh, I cringe for those states that have. But then I look at our school districts and uh, just how are we going to safeguard and still try to have some normalcy in athletics for, for our students? Uh, Dr. Hoswell? Um. Sure. Going back to, to the last question, um, if I may, I was silenced because I, I did not want to interrupt and definitely don't want to commandeer the conversation. I, um, but, um, you know, it, this has been tremendously challenging and, and it's been interesting for me to watch um, the, the, the level of additional support um, the teachers are providing, the additional work that the parents or families are doing to help their students learn at home or, or maybe a hybrid model. Um, you know, I, I know all of us are, are, are definitely excited about uh, the, um, the potentiality of a return to normal. And, and, and you know, this is a disruptive event, right? We know that, that K-12 public education is going to be forever changed because of this event. Um, we, we're not sure what it's going to look like, but we know there are going to be changes. And some of those can be improvements. Um, so I know that um, as, I'm, as I'm out talking to parents and, and talking to students, um, they, many of them have a yearning to, to have a, a, a return um, to, to normalcy. They, I've had students at the elementary level just talk to me about, you know, when will recess uh, go back to normal? When will, um, you know, high school students talking about extracurriculars and co-curriculars? And this is the life they live. And we're, we're trying to create uh, procedures and, and policies and allowances that keep them safe. Um, so I, I do think there is this, this uh, push and pull, if you will, um, in, 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 a, in the students' desire to, I, I, I hear it in their voices. They just want things to go back to normal. And I get it, right? If you're a high school, a middle school, high school student, um, and, and, and you're, you're, you're excited about participating in a, in a particular sport or a club or drama, a theater after school, it, I get, I get the, um, the disappointment in the restrictions or the inability to do so. Um, you know, and, and, and so I don't know what that means for them going forward. You talked to, I was talking to a student recently that graduated from Kokomo High School and he's playing baseball at a university and, you know, they kind of redshirted last year and they're not sure about this year. And, and, and you know, it's, uh, it, it's unfortunate the situation, the situation we're in. So um, I, I do know that, um, and I can't speak to the, the, the state policies. Um, I, I think our priority needs to be on um, trying to return as, as soon as possible to allowing our students in a safe way to have these experiences. Um, you know, I, I'm trying to put the students first. And, and, and so as far as that's, that to me is the, the most important thing is how can our students safely have these, these uh, enrichment experiences, these extracurricular experiences uh, in, in a safe manner. Um, as far as packing the gyms and, and, and the, the auditoria around Indiana and the gymnasia around Indiana, um, you know, if, if it's about students, it's keeping them safe. Um, I, I can't really, um, you know, in terms of the IHSA or the NCAA, um, it, it's, a, it's a difficult decision. Nobody ever dreamed they would be in a decision like this. But yeah, you're right. A lot of our students are, are trying to compete for athletic uh, scholarships and other things. And um, so, so I, I think that in terms of our, our health officials and, and our school officials, um, the most important thing is trying to find a safe way for our students to, to have those experiences. Um, and I think a secondary conversation might be 
on what allowance is for, for the community to watch and for the families to watch. But first and foremost, I think our decisions need to be based on what's best for our students. It's a pretty general answer, but it's the best I can give you uh, without having all the data and, and the processes in place. Uh, and April and Cindy might, might have additional information and insights into that. So is, is that, a, you think that's a pretty fair, I mean, you know, I, yeah, I, 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 mean, I hear our students when I talk to them saying, I, you know, we, we really just want to be able to do these things for, and uh, you know, when, uh, when I was at a school um, or, or last week, uh, one, one student and just said, Dr. Hoswald, I just want to be able to play soccer at recess. I just want to be able to play. So I promise I won't use my hands. Um, you know, he, he's, he, I promise I won't touch any other students. He's making all these promises. And he, he just, in his heart, he wanted to play soccer at recess. And for him, that was the one big issue. He, that was his big ask to me was, can we play soccer at recess? And so I, I think every student, um, you know, when we, when we talk about um, the, this traumatic event and we talk about our students getting re-engaged in school, every student has a different need. Every student has something that, 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 that gets them to school or that, that, that gets them engaged in school. And so I know that we're doing our best to, re to return those, those individual things to students in a way that's safe um, because uh, every, every student has different needs and, and, and it's how we help meet those. Sorry, April, I, I was finishing the thought and didn't even interrupt you. Oh no, I, I just, um, you know, I think it's both, right? Um, I know how much some of these students, some of our students need this outlet. And I also see how many of our COVID notifications have come from extracurricular or athletic teams, right? And so those are two things that I'm constantly sort of like are in conflict for me. Um, I feel like, you know, we didn't let a lot of extracurricular clubs meet in the building, but because ISHA, ISHAA is sort of like, you know, covers the sports sort of athletics, um, there were different rules, right? And so I think that was hard for a lot of people and parents, like kids who are like, why can I have my robotics club? But like they can have wrestling matches, right? So I think that was difficult for a lot of people. And, and I will say it was hard for me to see so many um, sporting events that were unmasked where players are unmasked, right? And then you get those notifications and you're like, well, of course they're spread among athletic teams because they're playing unmasked or they're, you know, whatever. So yes, I get that it's an outlet. And I think it's, it's it definitely important for many students' mental health. And I also think um, we have to, if we're going to do that, then it has to be done in ways that are actually going to be safe and that will, you know, contain spread and things like that. Um, so, so I don't know. I mean, you know, we took, we took our kids out of most things and I know that we were maybe on the more cautious side of things than others. Um, we kept our kids at home, um, our son is a rock climber and sure he can climb outside, but there's not a lot to climb here in Indiana. So um, he wasn't climbing indoors at a gym because it just wasn't safe for a long time. Um, you know, I actually sent my kid back to school today for testing, which we went around and around and around about, but I asked him, he's nine. I asked him how he felt about it. And it was a two hour window. It was only with other online kids. It was in a small group testing situation. And he said he wanted to go. So we sent him in. It's a, it's really like one of the first times he's been in a classroom in a building with other kids for a year now. And, um, it was a little heartbreaking when he came home, you know, because he was, he was like, I don't think it had really hit him how much he needed that or how much he missed it until he was in the room again. And he was just like, I don't want to do this anymore. I, I want to be done and we're not done yet. You know, we're just not done yet. 
So I think we've still got some, some caution that we need to move forward with. And I know people are eager to just be done. We all are, right? We just want to be done. I want to be done. I want, <laughs> uh, I want to I, touch on a hot button topic that could easily take up the last 15 minutes of our time. And that is redistricting. Um, Jacinda, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think uh, that hasn't happened in this area for 25 plus years. That is correct. So I'm, I'm wondering what the impact has been on the, the students and the schools and what kind of benefits uh, that, that we might see if we did tackle redistricting. Sure. Um, and I'm glad you, you brought up the 25 years because, um, you know, as Malcolm X says, progress involves healing historic wrongs. And in 1996, there was a huge wrong that was perpetrated on the school corporation. Um, the boundaries, as we know, are drawn now like puzzle pieces. Um, I used to live very close to Childs, but my kid was not districted for Childs. Um, and so we need to see structural change because our current school inequities are such that we're unable to deliver that equitable education. I mean, there's one school that where everyone seems to need a lot of Title I, or not everyone, I won't generalize, but there's one school that needs a lot of Title I resources. Um, we know that pouring money into segregation does not work. Um, it is, you know, very much easier to teach a class full of kids who don't need that much help. So we do, we have existing inequities. And like you say, I mean, I could talk for hours about this, right? Um, but I, I do want to, and I know we're running out of time, but I do want to leave us with this thought that, yes, it has been 25 years. Um, and this keeps, we keep saying, oh, we're going to talk about equity. We're going to talk about equity. We have not. We never do. Um, there's this great James Baldwin quote, and, and I'm not going to read it the way he reads it because he's awesome. But he says, what is it that you wanted me to reconcile myself to? I was born here 60 years ago. I'm not going to live another 60 years. You've always told me it takes time. It's taken my father's time, my mother's time, my uncle's time, my brother's and my sister's time, my nieces and my nephew's time. How much time do you want for your progress? And I would just say that about redistricting. You know, um, I feel like, you know, and I, and I don't want to put Dr. Hoswald on the spot because he says he wants to research these issues. But I will say there's a lot of data that's already been gathered. There is actually a really nice redistricting plan that was drawn up this summer. Um, and so I would love to hear, I want to hear more from April, but I would also love to hear from Dr. Hoswald about when we might have this equity summit, when we might discuss the data that we already have, when we might start to talk about, you know, equity in terms of redistricting or anything else. Um, and, and how quickly that's like our plan going forward. And I'm going to let Dr. Hoswald talk in just a second. I just want to say, this is to me, right? This is one of those key issues for why I ran. And Jacinda, I love that Baldwin piece because it's exactly right. We are just, I mean, I know that structural and systemic change takes time, but like we have had time and we are out of time at this point, right? I, we can't take another 10 years to enact some kind of real systemic or structural change because that's another 10 years of children moving through the system that is inequitable. And so that's why I jumped on board, you know, this summer, I just thought, no, like we, we're doing this, we've been doing this. I was banging the drum as a teacher, right? I resigned for many of these reasons because I could not bang it hard enough as a teacher. And so I thought, fine, I'm gonna go bang it as a board member, right? Um, and so 
yeah, I'm, I'm with Jacinda, you know, it's, we are long overdue in this town and I know that it's not going to make some people happy. Um, but we've got to talk about how we really do achieve equity in our schools in a way that's actually equitable, you know, and some people are going to have to give up something. I mean, they just are, but, um, but yeah, I don't know. I'll let you talk, Dr. Hoswell. <laughs> Thank you. No, I, I think these are going to be important conversations. And I, I, I you know, um, Jacinda has, has, has shared with me the urgency behind this. Um, I get it, right? I mean, this is, um, there, there's, no lot, there's no time like today to, to begin having serious conversations about how we equitably meet the needs of our students. And there's a lot of people with a lot of different definitions of equity. But I, I know that we have to be very intentional making sure that first and foremost, that we are closing the achievement gap for priority populations. That's our students of color, particularly our black students. Um, that, that's students, um, um, students from pover of poverty. Um, it's making sure that all of the priority populations, um, that we are providing equitable services to them. And, and um, you know, that there's no secret that, that, that I've been in Kokomo for 10 and a half years um, and, and we were um, providing equal services to all students, uh, even almost for exceptional students. Um, and, and so we, we immediately started a process for identifying how we provide more equitable services. Um, so that included a, a more inclusionary model for, for our special education, for students um, in our special education program. Um, that included uh, looking at how we increase access, um, how we make sure that, um, that where a student lives or a student's zip code, right, um, does not uh, determine uh, his or her destiny. Um, these are really important things that we, we have to look at. Um, in terms of the, the, the final solution to that, uh, I mean, of course, ever, uh, I think that there are some community conversations that take place, um, but it can't be stretched out over, um, as Jacinda pointed out, 25 years. I mean, we, we have to um, listen to the community, but we also, in my opinion, there's some urgency, right? There's some urgency to make sure that, that our, our assignment, that there, there's not... Um, institutional racism, right? And, and how we assign our students to, to their schools or to their classrooms or how we assess whether a student is two standard devi deviations above the norm and should be assigned and recommended to, to, um, to a gifted and talented program. Um, there, are, there are studies that we have to do to make sure that, um, that there isn't um, um, some sort of uh, overt or covert racism in, 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 the, in the disciplining of students uh, based upon on their color. Um, I, I can go on and on. So um, these, and, and what that solution looks like and how we meet the needs of our, our students, um, that's going to be the, in my opinion, the, the most important conversation that we have. Um, and, and if I may, um, I would be remiss to not point out that we have talked a lot about a lot of outputs today um, related to adding social workers and meeting the, the emotional health of students. We've talked about um, how, we, how we expand access, right? Expanding access um, may have additional transportation costs, right? It may, it may come with, um, with additional staffing needs. With our, emotion, with our uh, English learning community, right? Our English learners, there may be additional staffing that's needed. So if we're going to be equitable in the, in the services that we provide to our students in an effort to close the achievement gap, we have to talk about the, some of the um, institutional and structural racism that's existing from our state funding. And, and, and you know, uh, when we issued up in Kokomo, we, uh, we issued an anti-racism statement and we had five tenants. Two of those are focused on the state level policies, one of which is associated with um, the, the use of vouchers, one of which is associated with the need to, 
fully fund the complexity index. That's the, that's the, the funding metric that, that helps uh, provide funding for at-risk students because we know conclusively that it costs more to educate students of poverty. We know that. And we know that if we don't provide that additional funding, the achievement gap is going to grow. And we know that when we do provide that funding, it allows us to provide smaller class sizes, to, to properly pay our teachers in urban educational settings, to provide um, social workers and smaller counselor to student ratios like Jacinda talked about, um, to provide greater support for our online learners, um, for after school support, remediation support. I can go on and on and on. But the irony is that when you adjust for inflation, the state of Indiana over the last decade has reduced funding to K-12 public education by 7% at the least. And I have a higher percentage, but that's Michael Hicks. He's an economist at Ball State University and he's a conservative economist. So we, the, the conservative economist is saying that we're, we have 7% less money now and we know our needs have only grown. So in what universe do you, do you, you know, they always, they say this, Show me your pocketbook, show me your, and, and, and show me your, your, your checkbook register, if you will. I know that's 1980s. And I'll show you what your priorities are. And in the state of Indiana, we're spending less on K-12 public education today than, than we did a decade ago. And, and I do have to point out that right now, there's a state conversation. They've admitted there's a $600 million shortfall to properly pay our teachers. But yet there, there's a budget proposal in House Bill 1001 that actually increases funding for vouchers for students that make $144,000 next year and then $175,000. And they've admitted that there already is capacity limits at our private schools, which what does that mean? That means our private schools are going to continue to be more and more selective. And we've seen in our vouchers the last few years that fewer and fewer black students are getting vouchers, right? Which means that we're seeing more and more segregation in our schools. We know that when we don't uh, fund our complexity index, and in and, and the last, uh, since 2015, with the Fix It Foundation, we've seen funding go from equitable to a movement towards equal, the same for everyone, right? Giving the same, a desire to give the same amount of money for a student from Zionsville as a student from, urban, from an urban setting that, that needs much more support. And what you're seeing is you're seeing teacher salaries in urban education be suppressed. And so these are really, really important conversations and you know, there is a institutional racism, that's, that's, that's racism within the institution of like a private school that can, can be very, very selective in who they select, right? By saying, we're not going to accept a student of LGBTQ, for example, that's just one of many examples. Or um, a student that practices, um, uh, that, that studies Islam and give a lot of examples to that. And then the, the, the other side of that is the structural racism that, that exists because of the political system that is, is trying to fund all students in the same amount. And, and we have to address these things because the, the need is great. And if we're going to equitably meet the need of our, needs of our students, we have to have that conversation. And, and, and the last thing I'll say is that, um, you know, Bloomington has been um, very, very supported by, its, by the community in the fact that they have passed a referendum in, in for the last two times of 7.3 million. And, and we haven't even asked for an increase in that amount, even though, inflationary, um, the inflationary rates has, has, has deeply increased the cost of, of, of what we're using the referendum dollars for. So I know that in the future, we're going to be having that conversation. The state is not providing the money it needs for public ed. So what is the community going to do to step in and fill that gap to make sure that we remove bias and, 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 um, and provide more equitable education to, to, our, to our students in MCCSC? So I'm sorry I went over on my time on that, but we've got to sorry. talk about that. We have to talk about that input, the revenue we need right. to do what has to be done to meet the needs of our students. 
Can I just ask, because I used to be a host on Bring It On, so I'm going to put on my host desk and just press you on this. These are important conversations, but I'm going to ask you again when we are going to start having them. Do you envision having an equity summit in your first 100 days, your first six months? Uh, what kind of timeline can we maybe expect? Or, or better yet, before before our, our guest answers that, and, and I'll take producer privilege as a producer Bring It On, um, to say that we have run out of time. And so as not to rush a quick response, we'll just use this as a, a springboard to invite Dr. Halswell back before July, uh, if, he's, if, if we would love to have you back before your start date to sort of continue um, portions of the conversation that we did not get to. Um, I think we, we more than scratched the surface. Uh, I think we feel your passion and where your heart is concerning a lot of things. But as Jacinda says, Jacinda um, likes to, to move towards action, <laughs> which is good. And uh, we need to continue that part. But uh, we do want to thank uh, Dr. Jeff Halswald, the newly appointed superintendent from Monroe County Community School Corporation for joining us this evening to introduce himself and share some of his vision moving forward. His tenure once again, officially begins on July 1st of 2021. Also, we are indebted. Our, our great thanks to Monroe County Community School Corporation trustees April Hennessy from District 2 and bring it on contributor, uh, likewise, a MCCSC trustee, Jacinda Towns and guide us from District 6. Both of you, thank you for sharing your observations, opinions, and, and passion as we move forward as a, as, a, as a county. Thank you. Thank you so much. Always great to be here with you. Bring It On has an open submission policy, so if you have any ideas for this program, we'd like to hear what they are. You can send your emails directly to our volunteer staff. Our address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share any and everything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. That email address again is bringiton at wfhb.org. Also, if you have an event or happening the African-American community should know about, please send the information directly to the Bring It On staff. Or if you want additional information about a, an item, a calendar item, or any information on the guests that you've heard this evening, contact us at bringingon at wfhb.org. Our show's executive producer is that gentleman you were just listening to, Clarence Boone. Our assistant producer is yours truly. Consultant and WFHB News Department Director is Kate Young. Our program engineer is Chantal LaFontant. Original theme music was created by Jamil Effium with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I am William Hosea. I'm Clarence Boone. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.